Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last time we discussed the Sixth Commandment, <clears throat> and I covered um, the foundations of sexual morality. I especially highlighted um, the fact that <clears throat> sex has two purposes, uh, procreation and the good of the spouses, the unity of the relationship, babies and bonding. <laughs> and um, remind me, I believe <clears throat> that I highlighted that one of those two prior to the Second Vatican Council explicitly and very clearly had priority and in much that the church has published since the other, uh, or they're, they're, they're presented as if on the same level. Does that sound familiar to you? No? Okay, great. Then I'll cover that tonight. Tonight, the topic um, is a continuation of what the Catechism teaches about the Sixth Commandment. Uh, tonight, we are specifically discussing the love of husband and wife. Human sexuality is ordered toward marriage. It is ordered toward marital love. It is ordered toward the self-gift and union that is manifested, that is, is realized in a lifelong commitment. Physical intimacy is a sign of that moral union, uh, that, that spiritual communion that is marriage. This being the case, sex is noble and honorable. We tend to think of it in our society. We tend to, our society tends to mock the church for being prudish and for denigrating sex and pretending that it's evil. But this is just untrue. The church acknowledges, the church teaches perhaps more forcefully than any other authority, any other source in society, that human sexuality is good. It fosters self-gift. It manifests self-gift physically. And it should be a source of joy for spouses. If I can add a little bit, when it is not a source of joy, even in marriage, and I am not talking about anyone that you know, I hear that in confession sometimes. That is always a sign to me that communication is not happening in a healthy way in that marriage. Because it should be a source of joy. It should be something for which the spouses are grateful both for that power and for that experience of one another. And if they are not, 
they should be able to communicate about that with their spouse. God himself made sex pleasurable. He designed it that way. That is not an effect of the fall. (laughs) That we treat that pleasure in purient ways is an effect of the fall. But the pleasure itself that is built into that act is designed by God. And so seeking that pleasure within marriage is not evil, period. Seeking it in a selfish way, seeking it in a way that, that denigrates the spouse, that fails to, disrespe- to respect the spouse, that fails to respect the integrity of what human sexuality is, yeah, that's all sinful. But the pleasure is not. Seeking it is not. Rather, it is a gift from God and should be received as such. It should be enjoyed as such. As we discussed last time, the, the reality of what sex is should moderate that, that pleasure-seeking. And this is one of the points where the catechism, I think, goes a little too far in trying to update the theology of the church. It says that human sexuality fulfills and manifests the twofold end of marriage, the good of the spouses themselves and the transmission of life. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, the church was pretty much unanimous in every source you could look at that the transmission of life is the primary good. The good of the spouses themselves is a secondary good. Really a good. No one denies that it is a good of marriage. No theologian denies that it is a good of marriage. Even St. Paul says that it is good for the spouses. But the primary good, I think we have to maintain, even though the catechism is not so forceful on this, I think we have to maintain that the primary good of marriage is the transmission of life. That's not to say that marriage is somehow not marriage or ceases to be marriage when the transmission of life is no longer possible. No. It's to say that it has, it has or cannot serve its primary function, but it still can serve its secondary function, its secondary purpose, the good of the spouses. Does that make sense? The reason that this matters, the reason that this matters is that if the two, the good of the spouses and the transmission of life, are perfectly equal it's very easy to fall into all kinds of errors of reasoning about the, the um, relationship between marriage and sex. Because it is the sexual character of marriage, or it, it, is, it is because marriage is about sex, no, the other way around, it is because marriage is about the transmission of life that it is about sex. If it were just about the good of the spouses, sex wouldn't need to be a part of it. If they were equal goods and you could set aside one, then again, sex wouldn't need to be a part of it. But because, in fact, it is about the transmission of life first, 
Even, even when a couple seeks marriage in their old age, if they are permanently impotent, if they cannot consummate their marriage, they can't get married. Because marriage is about sex. Because it is about the transmission of life. Even when the, the systems that... The, the reproductive systems no longer function properly. Did, did everybody follow that? Can I ask a question about that? Yeah, please. What if it came to a point where two older people wanted to get married mm-hmm. and they were past childbearing age, both, or certainly the woman, but right. the man was impotent, how would that work? If, if he were permanently impotent, and, and I emphasize permanent because more often than not, most cases of impotence are not permanent. Um, but if it were, if he knew and doctors confirmed that he was permanently impotent, then he could not get married. The marriage has to be consummated. So a person who is a quadriplegic with no hope of ever um, completing the sexual act cannot get married. Not because they cannot seek a kind of loving relationship with someone else, but because marriage is about sex. Because it is about the, the, the transmission of life. Does that make sense? Hard. Hard teaching. I readily admit that. But it is, it is clear in canon law. It is clear in the long-standing practice of the church uh, one has to be able to complete the marital act in order to validly marry. Okay? Well, I'll, I'll get to that, a little bit more about that in, in a few moments. But I did want to emphasize, I've, in these talks I've emphasized a few other places where I think the, the language of the catechism is a little weak, a little less precise than it ought to be. This is, this is one of those. <clears throat> But what the Catechism emphasizes here, with respect to the twofold ends of marriage, what it emphasizes well is really necessary. You cannot separate those two intentionally. You cannot separate the good of the spouses from the transmission of life intentionally without destroying human sexuality and therefore without destroying marriage, without compromising, as the Catechism says, the goods of marriage the couple's spiritual life, and the future of the family, both that particular family and the meaning of the family in society. When I prepare couples for marriage, I like to describe the requirements for a valid marriage with four Fs. Perhaps you've heard these before. Free, full, faithful, and fruitful. It has to be free. You have to give consent willingly. You cannot be constrained. You cannot be obliged. You have to give your whole self. The Code of Canon Law uses the term consortium vitae, a consortium of life, a sharing of the whole of life. And then the catechism, and the reason I I list those four, is the catechism then here goes into detail about the last two. Fruitful and faithful. With respect to faithfulness, conjugal fidelity, 
this total gift of self to each other has to be total, not only in the sense of everything I have now is yours, but everything I ever will have, my whole future self, I give to you. The reason that this is so important, theologically, on a natural level, the reason it's so important, I hope, is obvious. Love is permanent. To say I love you and then to retract that or to act in a way contrary to that is a betrayal. Even if it's, if, whether it's a matter of five minutes later or 50 years later. It is a betrayal of one's own word. The reason theologically that it is so important to be faithful for life is that marriage is meant to be a reflection of the relationship between God and the church. And in the Psalms, God says, even if we should abandon him, he will never forsake us. He is perfectly faithful. And so the marriage of spouses, the, faith, the fidelity of spouses to one another becomes a reflection of God's fidelity. Tonight I'm going to read a fair number of paragraphs, mostly because the language later on is very precise and it's important to hear it and, and get it correct. But this next paragraph I want to read because it's so beautiful. It's from St. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom suggests that young husbands should say to their wives, I have taken you in my arms and I love you and I prefer you to my life itself. For the present life is nothing and my most ardent dream is to spend it with you in such a way that we may be assured of not being separated in the life reserved for us. I place your love above all things, and nothing would be more bitter or painful to me than to be of a different mind than you. How beautiful. So we talked about free briefly, full, the catechism describes marital fidelity, and then describes fecundity or fruitfulness. Up to this point, the, church, the catechism has already emphasized well the necessary connection between, between fruitfulness, or I'm sorry, between babies and bonding, right? Between the two goods of, the two ends of sex and the two ends of marriage. <clears throat> but here, here the church begins to emphasize um, the, the responsibility within marriage to promote the reception of the gift of life, beginning by emphasizing that it is a gift. It is a gift that we do expect reasonably because it is the natural purpose of marriage. The natural, it is naturally connected to the sexual act. Conjugal love naturally tends to be fruitful as the Catechism says. For this reason, and this fits in with what I was saying about 
the necessary connection between sex and marriage. The desire for fecundity within marriage is not something that they should add on to their love for one another, but it is a natural fruit and a fulfillment, a natural expression of that love. This is why, as I talked about last or two weeks ago, this is why contraception within marriage is so gravely evil. Each and every marital act should remain ordered within itself to the procreation of human life. That's not to say that every time a couple is intimate, they need to be trying as best they can to have a child. No. But the act itself cannot be changed in such a way as to close it to procreation without destroying the act itself. Married couples should see it as their purpose to transmit human life and to educate their children. Implicit in that is to educate them in the faith, to make disciples of your children. Here the church addresses the question of regulating procreation, regulating births, spacing births. The Catechism says that for just reasons, spouses may wish to space the births of their children. What the church means by for just reasons is rather important. What constitutes a just reason? Immediately, the Catechism says, spouses must be very careful that, it is not, that they are not motivated by selfishness. A way I like to explain that to couples that I prepare for marriage is that in the United States, finances generally should not be the reason to avoid having a child, to avoid conceiving. Because in the United States, we live in a place of such abundance that while it's true, you might not be able to pay for your kids to go to college, you might not be able to pay to send them to the best schools. Who said you had to? Certainly God did not. You do have a responsibility to form them as best you're able. However, there are many reasons that might be a cause for, a a, a just cause for spacing children, or even avoiding, for an extended period of time, having a child. For example, the health of the mother. I know of many cases where, where women are told that if they conceive another child, they are putting their life at risk. Now that might be a reason to avoid having a child. A mother and father might voluntarily accept that risk 
And that is a choice that they are free to make. But that might be a reason for them to avoid having a child at that time, to avoid conceiving. Or, I think probably more common, psychological reasons might constitute just cause for spacing children. Those of you who are mothers and fathers, but mothers especially, know this far better than I, sleep deprivation can have a profound effect on your psyche. (laughs) And especially in the first six months to a year of your child's life, you're not going to get much of that. (laughs) And so spacing children, if only for the sake of having some reprieve, a period of time where you can sleep through most of the night, maybe, (laughs) might actually constitute a just cause for spacing children. Does that make sense? Any questions there? That's a topic I get a lot of questions about. Okay. However, the regulation of the spacing of children cannot be evaluated on intention alone. Having a good intention having a good reason to space children does not in itself justify whatever it takes to space children. No, you still have to observe the unitive and procreative nature of sexuality. And you cannot intentionally destroy that. So artificial contraception, by any means, remains sinful, even if there is a just reason for it, a just cause for seeking it. What we're left with is periodic continence or natural family planning. I suspect that all of you have some familiarity with this, but natural family planning is very, very different from the rhythm method uh, of a hundred years ago or even perhaps 50 years ago. It is far more scientific and far more effective. Anyone I've had an honest conversation, anyone who's practiced NFP with whom I've had an honest conversation about NFP admits it's just difficult really difficult. It's not this beautiful, wonderful thing that just makes marriage better in every way, even though there are some who, some Catholics who want to present it that way. It is difficult, but there is beauty in that difficulty because it encourages communication between the spouses about the most substantive decisions within their marriage is now a good time for us to have another child? Do we have a just reason to postpone having another child? Are we adequately expressing our love for one another? Here's where what I was saying about something I've learned 
in my time in the confessional can come into play. Do you even want to be intimate? Do you feel loved enough to want to be intimate with me? That's a question that spouses are forced to ask one another. Here's a paragraph that I wanted to read in whole um, because the language is so clear and, and so forceful. Every action, which whether in anticipation of the conjugal act or in its accomplishment, or in the development of its natural consequences, proposes, whether as an end or a means, to render procreation impossible is intrinsically evil. So contraception, sterilization, pulling out, intrinsically evil. Any questions so far? Great. The church then goes on to address infertility. And I'm grateful that the church spends so much time in the catechism on this topic. She begins by acknowledging that both sacred scripture and the tradition of the church affirm that large families are a gift of God and a sign of the parents' generosity. Sadly, even for me, having come from a big family, knowing the teaching of the church and, and loving the teaching of the church, our, our society's influence is such that even I think of the joke Yeah, large families might be a sign of the parents' generosity or their stupidity. (laughs) Right? That's a joke that our society would offer. But it's completely untrue. Having a large family is hard work, as many of you know far better than I. But it is a beautiful gift of God and a beautiful sign of the generosity of spouses. But then the church turns from that affirmation of the generosity that parents are called to, spouses are called to, to the suffering of those who experience infertility and acknowledges directly it is a great suffering, a great sorrow. That sorrow should be a reminder to us, a sign to us of all that the church has said about the connection between marriage, sex, and procreation. It is a sorrow because that natural connection between those is not fulfilled. That natural longing of spouses to become parents is not satisfied. That dissatisfaction should affirm to us that that connection is natural. It's not something that the church created, but rather was built in by God. Because this suffering is so great, the church encourages research to remedy infertility, so long as it is done in a way that does not denigrate the person 
or distort the nature of the sexual act or the nature of procreation. So here are a couple paragraphs that I want to read in toto. Techniques that entail the dissociation of husband and wife by the intrusion of a person other than the couple, such as donation of sperm or ovum, a surrogate uterus, surrogacy in general, are gravely immoral. These techniques, heterologous artificial insemination, heterologous meaning donated by someone other, hetero, other than the couple, heterologous artificial insemination and fertilization, infringe the child's right to be born of a father and mother known to him and bound to each other by marriage. They betray the spouse's right to become a father and a mother only through each other. I'm hesitant to bring up the thought that I want to share, but I'm going to share it anyways. Some in the church, whom I believe to be gravely in error, want to defend Putin as a defender of Western Christian thought and that he has attacked Ukraine because it has become a bastion of liberalism. As, an, as evidence of this, they offer that the Ukraine per capita leads the world in surrogacy, and surrogacy is gravely evil. The problem with this reasoning is that Russia, per capita, is among the leaders in abortion. Neither country is morally pure. No country is morally pure. However, the one kernel of truth in that fallacious reasoning is that surrogacy is gravely evil because it distorts the relationship between child and parent. I think it important to offer here, especially given how common in uh, IVF, in vitro fertilization, and all the other techniques that stem from that basic method, given how common that is, I think it's really important to offer here that while the church does not approve of that act, there is no person who has been conceived through that technique whom the church somehow rejects. No, the church desires each of those people. In fact, we can say that in God's permissive will, even though that we, we would identify that technique as sinful, we would still say that God actually desired that person's existence. Much like we might say of, of someone conceived in a far more violent and heinous sin 
the sin of rape. Even if father and mother did not love one another and desire a child, God desired that child. And so also does the church. The Catechism goes on to point out that techniques like IVF, homologous artificial insemination, so creating an embryo of the sperm and ovum of the mother and father of the same couple, is still morally unacceptable, even though it is perhaps less so than, than... having someone else intervene in the, the procreation of life. Because the Catechism does a great job of emphasizing if there is any right in the creation of new human life, if anyone in that process has rights, it is the child. No one has a right to a child. A child is always a gift. But the child has a right to be the fruit of the love of his mother and father. And not only of their love in their will, but of a physical loving act of his mother and father. One way to defend this is to highlight that artificial forms of conception, of fertilization, are actually acts of domination of the parents over the child. They're not a reception of the child as a gift. And they do not maintain the equality, the fundamental equality in dignity between mother and father and child. Now, a child, while a minor, is not, in a moral sense, the equal of his parents. But once an adult, they truly are equal in dignity, in responsibility. And that reality is, is profoundly undermined through artificial techniques of conceiving a child. A child has the right to be the fruit of the specific act of the conjugal love of his parents and the right to be respected as a person from the moment of his conception. The church ends her reflection on infertility by pointing out that while it is a great suffering, it is a great cross, it is not an absolute evil, but rather an invitation to carry the cross of Christ, to become more spiritually fruitful, more self-giving 
interiorly. Any questions there? Okay. This last portion of the Catechism's treatment of the Sixth Commandment, I covered already somewhat last time, so I'm going to be brief here. The final section is on the offenses against the dignity of marriage. The first, which we very thoroughly talked about last time, was adultery. The second, divorce. Christ's language is pretty hard to get around on this question. The scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, why Moses allowed divorce, and Jesus abrogates, that is, strikes from the law, Moses' allowance for divorce. He says, it's only because of the hardness of your heart, but from the beginning it was not so. And then says, therefore, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Marriage, therefore, is indissoluble. A ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any other reason than death. The Catechism adds the, the, uh, the qualifier between the baptized. But faith is a greater good than marriage. And so there are exceptions to this universal law for the good of the faith. So in the case of conversion, when, someone is, when, two cup, when two people are not baptized and one is baptized subsequent to that and the one who, is not, who remains unbaptized leaves because of it, the church retains for herself the authority to break that marriage for the good of the faith, to sever it. This is a very exceptional case. I think I've only encountered it twice, maybe not even that many times in my six years as a priest. It does happen, but it's not a majority of cases. But between two baptized persons, two people who already possess the faith, marriage is indissoluble. Now, the, the catechism uses two technical terms, ratified and consummated. Ratified is the promises are made. Both husband and wife give their verbal assent to the marriage. Consummated is exactly what you think. The couple has performed the marital act subsequent to ratifying that bond, to making their vows to one another. The reason that both are important is that while a marriage is valid from the moment the vows are made, even if it's never consummated, it is a marriage, because marriage is about sex, if it is never consummated, the Pope can break 
a marriage that is not consummated. It's a real marriage, but if not yet consummated, it can be broken. This is even more rare than the other exception that I described. So ratified and consummated are the two essential elements for an indissoluble marriage. Ratified, a ratified marriage, one in which the vows are already made, is basically indissoluble. Because it's pretty hard to prove that you haven't consummated a marriage. And that is, that is the standard that the church upholds. Because marriage is so indissoluble, divorce is gravely evil. It is a lie. It makes oneself into a liar. It makes their testimony, the, the vows that they made to one another, meaningless. The church recognizes, however, that marriage is hard, really hard, sometimes unbearably hard. And so positively asserts that the separation of spouses, living apart from one another, can be legitimate, can be good for the spouses, for the children, even for the marriage. And then goes on to, to acknowledge that Civil divorce may sometimes be the only way to ensure the protection of children, the protection of certain legal rights, or even inheritance. And in such cases, it might not be a moral offense. The very next sentence of the Catechism, however, says that divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. So there are cases where it is not offense, an offense. But in itself, in general, it is a grave offense against the natural law because it breaks a contract that the spouses freely gave themselves to. It is a grave offense also because it breaks the sign value of marriage, the sign of the bond of Christ and his church. This divorce is not a sin merely if it leads to a remarriage. In itself, without those extraordinary circumstances, divorce in itself is gravely evil. And that evil is intensified by remarriage. The Catechism says that the remarried spouse is then subsequent to the remarriage, in a situation of public and permanent adultery. Divorce, I'm, I'm going to read a paragraph here. Divorce is, is immoral also because it introduces disorder into the family and into society. This disorder brings grave harm to the deserted spouse, to children traumatized by the separation of their parents and often torn between them, and because of its contagious effects, which make it truly a plague on society. I don't think I have to speculate much to think that every one of you knows someone, and maybe even loves someone, maybe is close to someone, who is divorced. 
it affects half of the marriages in our country. By no means am I trying to judge their soul by what I'm saying or condemn them. But we have to retain, we have to hold on to the truth about marriage. We have to hold the standard. Part of what that means in American society is that as Catholics, we should be vehemently opposed to no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce allows couples to separate without even attempting to offer evidence that any of these conditions that might create an exception where divorce is not a grave offense against the natural law. A couple who seeks no-fault divorce does not even need to attempt to say that any of those conditions are in play. They might just say that they don't like each other anymore. This is a tragedy. No-fault divorce allows structurally for us to tell people that their word has no meaning. At this point, it is a matter of public record, so I'll say it here. My own sister is divorced. I can tell you that circumstances, exceptional circumstances, were present, such that I do not believe her divorce was a grave offense against the natural law. But even in that case, divorce is a tragedy. It would be far better if those exceptional circumstances could be remedied. Now, I'm convinced that they could not. Because those exceptional circumstances do occur far too often, the church handles each case of a member of the faithful seeking divorce or having been divorced and seeking remarriage very carefully, very gently. Further, it can happen that one of the spouses did not seek divorce, but it was forced upon them by, by a divorce decreed by the civil law, by a judge sought by their spouse. There is no guilt in that. Any questions about the church's teaching on divorce, divorce and remarriage? Great. So if a person who is divorced, um, if, 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 yeah, if a couple is divorced and one of them dies, then the other is an unmarried person. They're, then their status certainly changes. Their, their marriage is broken. So even if 
if a marriage is divorced, is, is broken by divorce, in the eyes of the church, that couple is still married to one another. Uh, that couple still should remain faithful and, and not enter into a, 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 um, a romantic relationship with someone else. Um, but once that other spouse dies, the marriage is over, and they are free to enter into a new marriage if they so choose. Does that make sense? If I can offer just a, a little bit here on uh, annulment, I, I suspect that all of you have heard some of this before, but annulment is very different from divorce. Both civil annulment and ecclesiastical annulment, and both exist. An annulment is a declaration that the marriage that looked like it happened never actually happened. It was never actually a marriage. This can happen in civil law if a couple gets married before a judge, never consummates the marriage, never lives together, and uh, they, they separate from one another. They, they move apart and both seek an annulment, a civil annulment. I know for a fact that this can happen because I have walked someone through it. The church essentially does the same thing, only the church is looking much more carefully at the intention of both parties and the capacity of both parties to make meaningfully the vows that they make at their wedding mass. So those four Fs are evaluated. Are they free? Are, is their commitment full? Are they, do they intend to be faithful to it? Not have they been, although that can give evidence to whether or not they intended it, but did they intend to be faithful to one another? And did they intend to be fruitful in their marriage? If one or multiple of those conditions were not met at the time of the wedding, then the church will render a judgment when sought that that marriage was never a valid marriage because it is the consent that makes the marriage. If the consent did not include free, full, faithful, or fruitful, then the consent was not what the church expects. Does that make sense? I could probably teach a whole course on annulment, even though not a canon lawyer. But that's all I'll say for tonight. The church goes on to a few additional uh, offenses against the good of marriage. Polygamy, unequivocally condemned. Because whether it's polygamy or polyandry, it both deny the equality of the spouses. They create an imbalanced relationship. And they destroy the exclusivity, the total self-gift that is required of marriage. Hopefully, no one would need this explained, but the Catechism lists incest and other forms of sexual abuse perpetrated by adults on children and adolescents. The next offense against 
marriage is a term that I don't think anybody uses, at least since the 70s, free union. Free love is probably a better phrase, or the hookup culture. (laughs) But the church rightly points out that free love is neither free nor is it love. Both parties are slaves to their passions, not free to make a rational choice. And they are not loving because they are not giving a total gift of themselves. In summary, the sexual act must take place uniquely and exclusively within marriage. Outside of marriage, it is always a grave sin and excludes one from sacramental communion. In spite of all the ink that has been spilled about whether Pope Francis is trying to change this or not, which I don't think is worth paying attention to, While he has made changes to the catechism with respect to the death penalty, he has changed nothing in the catechism in this section. So I think much more is made of footnote 357 than it ought to be. The teaching of the church here remains clear. What Pope Francis rightly emphasizes is that we we have to show compassion and sensitivity when trying to help someone who has, who has entered into sins against marriage, we have to be gen- sensitive and careful in trying to help them sort it out and grow closer to God and, and restore union with God. Any last questions? Great. Then I'll give you a blessing. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.